grace and peace are yours in Jesus' name, friends. Amen. The Transfiguration, this event we're talking about this Sunday, it's not probably one of the better known events in the Gospels, these four books of the Bible that recount the life of Jesus, right? Everybody knows Easter, even people who aren't necessarily Christian, churchgoers, Bible-believing, Bible-knowing people, they know something about, well, that was when Jesus was uh, resurrected, right? And there was an Easter bunny involved somehow, they might have this impression. And people know that at Christmas, Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus, But I bet if you asked the average person what the Transfiguration celebrates, what event in the life of Jesus, they would have no idea. And even some people who know the Bible fairly well don't actually know what that event is. That's what we read about this morning. And it's this this event that Matthew, Mark, Luke all record directly in their books, and the Apostle John references. When all four gospel writers see fit to include something in their books, we should understand it's an important event in the life of Jesus. In Matthew, Mark, we read Mark's account, Luke all record it directly, sort of this event where Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain and they they see Jesus shining forth, as we read earlier. John was there on the mountain. And he doesn't recount the event directly, but he references it and kind of talks about its meaning in his gospel. In John chapter 1, John writes this, We saw Jesus' glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John speaks there of having seen glory. That's what he saw there on the mountain as Jesus was transformed before, before his eyes, Peter's eyes, James's eyes. And then John goes on. He saw this glory from the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus showed that he was someone different than Moses, someone with a different ministry than Moses. John contrasts these two people. He contrasts what Moses did during the time that Moses lived, 1400, 1500 years before Jesus, as God's chosen leader for the people of Israel then, John contrasts that with what Jesus did as the Savior God sent into the world. As we heard in our first reading, you've got this Moses who was allowed to see God. God passed by Moses on a mountaintop. He showed Moses his back, covering him in a cleft in the rock with his hand. And then there's another figure who was there on the mountain, someone that we probably won't get to hear as much about generally, which is kind of a shame because Elijah, this other figure who's there on the mountaintop, Jesus, and then these two Old Testament figures appearing with him. Elijah was an important figure in the Old Testament as well. Elijah had a long and valuable ministry serving God's people. And he also, this is the interesting thing, got to interact directly with God on a mountaintop. Elijah is called out of a cave where he's hiding by God who's appeared to him on the mountain and when Elijah realizes that God is there he he covers his eyes with his hood he throws his hood over his head covers his eyes and just looks at the ground Moses is covered by God's hand until God has passed by and Moses can only see his back and so right here in this event the transfiguration and thinking about the lives of those two men we're learning something about what exactly is happening here on this mountaintop Moses, who interacted with God on a mountain 1,400 years before this. Elijah, also interacted with God on a mountaintop 900 years before this. 
Neither of them during those events were able to look on God's face. In fact, God told Moses, no one may look on my face and live. This time, God doesn't say that, though. Moses doesn't have to be covered by God's hand. Elijah doesn't have to hide with his hood. Instead, they get to look directly on the face of God as they look at Jesus. Because that's what's happening. That's who Jesus is. When Jesus was born as a human being, God took on human flesh. God has fingerprints now. God has a blood type. God's eyes are some particular color. We'll find out what they are someday. God has hair. God has teeth. God has a laugh as unique as the laugh of anyone else. Jesus was not always a human being, though. Before he was born, before even beginning to grow in Mary's womb, Jesus had already existed from all eternity as God. And this is what we learn, along with Peter, James, and John, as we're told of this glorious light that starts to shine forth from him, from his face, from his clothes. Mark, we read, describes his clothing becoming dazzling white there on the mountain, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach. And Matthew and Luke talk about it slightly differently, but similar comparison. They say that Jesus began to shine like lightning. Well, what's happening here is Jesus' divine glory is shining forth. This is the majesty and the splendor which is properly his as God, the true God, the creator of the universe. And during his life here on earth, Jesus hid this glory. He veiled it. He showed it somewhat to his disciples here on the mountaintop there, but even what they were permitted to see was veiled for their protection. As God said to Moses in the first reading, my face must not be seen. No one may see me and live. If God had shown his full divine glory there, as Jesus showed the disciples this this blinding light, they would have perished. Even this veiled glory, though, fills them with fear. The the disciples are, are terrified. Again, it calls to mind our first reading. Moses, who having seen God's back, first fell on his own face in fear and worship, then headed down the mountain. And as he came down, the Israelites saw him approaching with a glowing, a radiant face, just the showing off some of the glory, reflecting the glory of the God whom he had beheld at a distance there. And it terrified God's people to see this, this holiness and radiance and splendor. This is a pattern all throughout the Bible. Whenever sinful people behold God's majesty, God's holiness, it terrifies us. Even as angels, who likewise only reflect some of his own glory and splendor. They cause terror when they appear to people. All throughout the Bible, what's the first thing an angel almost always says when they appear to someone? Don't be afraid. Moses didn't come down the mountain just with this shining face, though. He came down bearing another manifestation of God's holiness. He came down bearing what we read, the tablets of the covenant law. So these were stone tablets on which God himself had written commands and laws for his people to obey. And once Moses got down the mountain, he began relaying these commands to the Israelites. God caused some of his own glory to shine forth in this way from Moses' face so that the Israelites would understand these commands delivered by Moses came from God himself. God had given these commands. They reflected God's holiness. And what God was showing his people through this holy law was that they were not holy. The best-known portion of the law given on Sinai is the Ten Commandments. And Jesus, when he was doing his own preaching, summarized those Ten Commandments this way. Love God, the first three commandments summarized. Love your neighbor, the last seven summarized. 
Love God. That means worship no other being. Offer your prayers to no other entity. Seek God's help alone and read his word to learn about him. Love God. Love your neighbor. That means look out for others. Protect their health. Don't endanger them. Don't take what belongs to someone else. Uphold others' reputations. Don't spread rumors, gossip. Those commands to love God and to love neighbor reflect God's holiness. God is holy and good in all these ways and more. God gives us life and health and healing. God provides the food we eat. God establishes governments to protect our property and our bodies. We are not good and holy as God is good and holy. The commandments which Moses brought down from Sinai, which Jesus taught during his own ministry, show us this as we fail daily to uphold the reputations of others, to protect their property. We don't show the love which we've been shown, and God's holy, majestic, splendid law therefore terrifies us, because the law which Moses brought down from God on Sinai ultimately concludes this way, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the law. We cannot pick and choose from the law. It's all or nothing when the law speaks. And whoever does not carry out God's law perfectly, thoroughly, every day, that is to say all of us, God calls accursed. We should be terrified of this holy and majestic God, this lawgiver, this stern judge whose face is too glorious to look on. The disciples feel that terror there on the mountain. We've got Peter babbling there about putting up a tent for Jesus. He barely knows what he's saying. And then a cloud covers them. There's some significance to this cloud. On a few occasions in the Old Testament, God appears to his people in a cloud. In particular, when we connect it to Moses' ministry, we find a couple of occasions. God first leading his people after escaping from Egypt. He leads his people through the desert in the form of a cloud. And they follow that cloud to where it settles on a mountain, on Mount Sinai. This is where Moses then ultimately goes up and receives the law. This cloud is a, a symbol, a sign for God guiding his people. First, literally guiding them through the desert as they follow this, this pillar of cloud that appears before them. And then the cloud covering the mountain and handing over to Moses for them life guidance, commands for every day. So when we see this cloud appearing, and we connect it with Moses there on the mountaintop of transfiguration, what we expect is we're going to hear a word of guidance, a word of command from God. So what does God say to these three disciples who are terrified standing there in the cloud? This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. There's guidance for them. And then the cloud disappears. Moses, the deliverer of God's law, is gone. Elijah, the executor of God's law, who oversaw the execution in one day of 450 false teachers in Israel, a man who was zealous for the law of God, he's gone. It's only Jesus who's standing there with the disciples. What is the difference between those two men and Jesus? Because Moses, Elijah, Jesus all taught the law of God. Again, Elijah was so zealous for God's law that God ultimately even rewarded him with never having to physically die, which is actually really funny because the only thing the Bible records that's at all negative in Elijah's ministry is that he was once so discouraged he asked God to just let him die so he could go to God in heaven. Eventually, God actually carries Elijah off to heaven, not having died in a chariot of hire driven by angels. God has a sense of humor. All three of these men, Moses, 
Elijah and Jesus, preached God's law, shared God's will for our lives, God's commands for our lives, God's demands on our lives. So what made Jesus different from the other two? Well, what made Jesus different, unique in fact, is that through his ministry he was able to deliver not just the threats, the, the, the commands, the demands of God's law, but a promise from God. Because of Jesus' own ministry, he was able to, refer, to offer over to his disciples, to us, to all people, the promise of resurrection from death, the promise of reconciliation with God, his own resurrection, guaranteeing our resurrection as well. Because just as Moses' law indicated, anyone who could not keep all of the law would be accursed. Jesus kept the entire law throughout his whole life and died nonetheless. The Apostle Paul records for us in Galatians that Christ became a curse for us, took the punishment that we deserve. Moses couldn't promise any such thing. Elijah couldn't promise any such thing. No preacher, not me, not anybody else can, of our own power, of our own accord, of our own ministry, promise such a thing to you. Jesus does. And the incredible thing about what Jesus did is that he gives that message, that gospel message, that good news of what he has done to us two preachers, two teachers, two Christians at large, and allows us to share that promise with others in his place. God sent Moses down the mountain to proclaim the law. The law was repeated through Elijah. It was affirmed in the ministry of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. God sent Jesus to provide the basis for the gospel, his promise of resurrection, reconciliation, And that's a message that's handed over as well. Just as the law was handed over from God, so the gospel is handed over from God through preachers and teachers. When Moses was sharing God's law, his his face reflected God's holiness, God's glory, radiant as he spoke with the people of Israel. But the gospel message, this message of good news, it's even more glorious. That's what we heard in our second reading, where the Apostle Paul told us, 2 Corinthians, that the ministry which brought death, which was engraved on stone, came with glory, such glory that the Israelites could not look on the face of Moses, that the law preaching was indeed a glorious thing, a holy thing. But Paul says, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? That is to say, how much more glorious is our ability to share on the basis of what Jesus did God's promise of forgiveness, of life, of salvation. But, not only is the message different, but its effect is different as well. The law and its holiness caused Moses to to shine with radiance and splendor and majesty and terrify people. The gospel doesn't do that. The, The gospel doesn't shine a light out of our faces as Moses had happened to him. Instead, Paul says, God made the light of the gospel 2 Corinthians 4, shine in our hearts. We hold this treasure, this beautiful message, we hold this treasure, Paul says, in jars of clay. 
The gospel does not make us shine forth with the same visible, terrifying glory. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Imagine if every Christian walked around with blinding lightning shining from their faces. When Moses came down from the mountain with this this radiance, the Israelites hid from him in terror. When Jesus and Moses and Elijah appeared, blinding the disciples in a display of God's splendor and glory, the disciples were terrified. That's what happens when God's law in its splendor and majesty is proclaimed, sinners go scurrying. So God's gospel light doesn't shine out from us on others in blinding glory. God causes the gospel to shine inside us. We are those jars of clay that Paul says God's treasure, the gospel message, is held inside. We are those jars of clay in our our simple, ordinary lives, in our flesh and blood human bodies. See, God shines his light not out of our faces at others to blind them. He shines his gospel light into our own hearts. So that seeing our own sin, we can rejoice in our Savior. And so that we can love others with the love God has for us. No sinner can look on God's face and live. That's why God became a man. So that he could be seen by sinners who need reconciliation with him. And to share that good news message with the world, God continues to use human beings, you and me, frail, breakable, jars of clay, And he doesn't make us shine with an outward, dazzling glory as Moses did. Because if the gospel made us visibly glorious, then the people with whom we interact each and every day and with whom we share the gospel, Paul says they might think that the power that we have comes from us. No, instead the gospel causes us to become visibly humble. It makes us patient and gentle and meek. Transfiguration always comes right before the season of Lent begins, because we need to know, as we enter Lent, when we reflect repeatedly on our own sin and our own guilt, we need to know what a Savior we have. Because if we don't know that, Lent will crush us. Lent will terrify us, because we will confront ourselves over and over with the holiness and majesty of God and our own lack. That's why we begin this season by remembering the transfiguration. We remember Christ revealing himself to be that holy and righteous God who handed over the law through Moses. And we rejoice in the message that he shared with the disciples as they came down the mountain. His promise to die for sinners, for them, for you, for me. We rejoice in knowing that God did not intend to leave us dazzled and terrified by his holiness and majesty, but that instead he wanted us to look on his face, to behold him, to be reconciled to him. And that he does that through the gospel. The law dazzles us, the law blinds us, the gospel shows us God's heart, shows us his compassion, shows us his grace. May this good news comfort and strengthen you through this season and always, sisters and brothers. Amen.